You are listening to the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. I'm your host, Mike Petchy. How are you? Come on in. Grab a seat. Grab a beer. Relax. Today, we're going to get into music, deep into film scoring, music composition, um, what it takes to uh, be a composer, um, the power of music in, in cinema, the power that music has of assigning a certain emotion to a moment. Um, and this isn't new material for us on the show. We've had other episodes. Go back and listen to them on uh, on composing music for film. And we tried to go in some different places on today's episode. Uh, and uh, today's guest, Roman Molino Dunn, he is a great composer. He's done like dozens and dozens of short films. He's done feature films. He recently did uh, a movie that I had heard his work in, which was AI, I love you on Netflix. That's AI, love you on Netflix. Uh, very synth wavy uh, score. And we're going to texture uh, this episode with a lot of his music, which I'm excited to do because we have the ability to do so. He has uh, released the music to us. So you're going to be able to hear his work as we go through this podcast. And uh, before we get too deep into it, I just want to thank everybody for being here. Thank you for supporting the show. Thank you for telling your friends about our show. Our numbers have been doing great, and that's because of you and your support. Um, if those of you who are new to the show, because we've had a lot of newcomers, welcome. Hang out. How are you? Uh, there's plenty of episodes out there. I know we're pushing pretty close to episode 200. We're right around the corner from it. Um, and there's a lot of episodes to listen to. You follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and you're like, man, where do I go? Do I go all the way back to episode one? Well, you might want to see how it sets up. And if you are that person, because so many of you listening, listen to the entire series, um, you'll hear my ebbs and flows emotionally throughout the show. There are moments where things are exciting and there are moments where things aren't exciting and there are moments where we find something new and we meet new people and then there are moments where it goes up and down all the way through. So it's a fascinating listen. Hours and hours and hours of content for you guys. Um, but if you want a more detailed search, if you just want to listen to all the composer episodes uh, or all the musician episodes that we've had on the show, head on over to inlovewiththeprocess.com. There, I've curated the episodes based upon subject material, make it super simple and easy for you to find what it is that you feel like listening to today. Um, yeah, what else is going on? Bunch of stuff. I'm recording this on the 23rd. I will see when this drops, but uh, today was the release of the big project that we talked about a few episodes ago. Uh, Gina was hired to go in and shoot photos for Entertainment Weekly. Entertainment Weekly is the publication that so many of you were trying to guess. Uh, and she went and was photographing the stars, the actors in the series The Boys, um, which was a lot of fun to see. Uh, and uh, she did a photo shoot and she also went in and did her video stuff. Really fascinating project for this one because you're always trying to cram so much stuff in into one setting, so much into... Uh, one set, uh, you know, they're doing like a video cover, which was beautifully shot. They're doing, uh, you know, photographs and Gina's also doing her uh, video teaser pieces, like the dad cami kind of stuff. Um, and so she brought that raw footage back to me and she's like, hey, can you play with this? And we came up with this really fun series 
of suspense-driven video pieces uh, that uh, I don't think they've released all of them yet as of this morning. I don't think so, but soon. Um, so yeah, very cool, man. It was It's rad to have, you know, Carl and all these guys on my edit system. <laughs> it's really cool. And the music and the soundtracks and all the stuff that you hear uh, behind the dad cam looking pieces, uh, that was all from Jambox, jambox.io. So those guys... Uh, have been continuously inspiring me with their catalog of stuff, which we'll get into in the sponsor read. Um, so yeah, before we get into it with Roman today, I just, I want to dig deep into the process of collaborating between, uh, the collaboration between a director and a composer. And it's always this weird, um, you know, malleable conversation. You know, like, when do you get a composer involved? Do you get a composer involved in the script stage? Do you get a composer involved while you're shooting? Do you get a composer involved in post? Um, and you'll hear us talk about that on today's episode. And we also get into like how money affects things. We also get into like managing your emotions, uh, managing your expectations emotionally for projects, um, and giving yourself a better understanding and opening yourself up to uh, you know the realities of the situation that you're in, and then finding the great things in that. Um, and I know I'm being, uh, very cryptic about it because I want you to listen to the fucking episode. <laughs> so we'll, you'll, fi you'll figure it out as, as you continue to listen. Um, really great stuff. Go check out Roman's, uh, stuff. I'll have his website, uh, his Instagram, everything listed below. Um, and, uh, I hope you guys enjoy listening to some of his score work on today's episode. So, you know, the deal crank those noise canceling headphones up to 11 uh sit back relax and uh let's get lost in the world of uh roman molino dunn on the brand new episode of in love with the process Thanks for being on the show. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. How about you? I'm good, man. It's a, it's a, it's a Monday. It's, <laughs> it's, a, it's an early, well, I guess it's the afternoon now, but it still feels like it's an early Monday for me. How are you doing on Monday? Ah, oh, pretty great. Pretty great. Can't complain. <laughs> Very positive. I like it. This is yep. what I need. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you're, uh, you're in uh, Los Angeles as well? I am. I am. I'm in Hollywood. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah, we're out here in Glendale, which... Uh, oh, nice. Yeah, it's really nice. Hold on as I back my microphone up. There we go. Technical issues this morning. Um, so excited to have you on the show, dude. Like, uh, uh, one of my favorite aspects of filmmaking, one of my favorite things to do whenever I do a film is uh, collaborate with a composer and create music. And uh, there is such a power to... 
uh, taking emotions and 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 giving them sort of a a physical entity, you know. And for me, that's usually music and film. And so, I can't wait to pick your brain, dude. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I, um, I share your enthuse for that that aspect of filmmaking. I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> well, I would hope so. <laughs> Being that you're a film composer, I would hope that you're pumped about that. <laughs> yeah. no, well, how, why why uh, composing for for film and TV stuff? Like, what got you into this? Oh, uh, it's kind of always been what I've I've uh, done. I mean, um, it's it's the only job I've ever had, uh, is writing music. Um, so it's not always been for film. Sometimes it's been for, um, artists. Mm-hmm. I still do that from time to time. Um, but yeah, that's, that's all I've ever done with my life really <laughs> is write music <laughs> for people. So, uh, that's, yeah, th- there was no other option. I mean, um, I, I kind of came in and out of doing music for multimedia. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, in the recent years, that's kind of been the majority of the work that I've been doing. Well, is this something that you want to do as a kid? Like, did someone hand you an instrument when you were younger and then it all went from there? Like, where did it start? Where did the sparks start? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I started uh, playing music when I was about four or five. Um, mm-hmm. Just kind of a lifelong um, education, I suppose. You know, started playing the piano as a kid. Um, and then I transitioned into uh, composition and music theory rather young. That was kind of where my heart always was. But, you know, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a composer. I always knew I wanted to be a composer. That was um, pretty much the life dream there. But at that point, I didn't realize what that meant. Um, you know, I thought it was writing music for the concert hall. Uh, you know, this is, uh, I don't want to age myself, but this was decades ago. Um, and, <laughs> you, you know, it wasn't as visible, uh, film composing or, uh, media composing, uh, as it's called sometimes it was more, if you, when you think of a composer, you think of, uh, the greats, uh, in the classical realm. Um, so you're writing for the orchestra or, or the choir. Um, and so I thought that's what I'd be doing and that's what I always aspired to do, but it wasn't until, uh, college that I started, uh, writing for picture. Mm. Yeah. Cause picture, I mean, that's the, that that's where it all lives these days, right? I mean, that's like, that's your biggest audience at that point, you know? Yeah, exactly. That's what I was going to say. A very great point. Um, one of the things that, that drew me to film scoring more than just the, the narrative aspect of it was that your music was reaching the largest audience mm. uh, and in the most impactful way, uh, that I could imagine, you know, I, I, I definitely have some very deep emotional moments when listening to music, uh, on its own, but, uh, when coupled with the rest of the, uh, multimedia art forms, it's just, uh, it takes on this whole new power and it's great to be a part of it. Was there specific music when you were younger that you listened to that really sort of triggered life-changing emotions for you? Yeah, yeah, and it's something I don't really get to do very often. There's not, uh, it's not, it's not asked of me uh, very frequently. But I was very much into uh, Renaissance music, um, so uh, like choral music of the uh, 15th century, that kind of thing. Um, oh, cool! And it something you know, there, there's this uh, texture in music called counterpoint, which is essentially having multiple melodies going at the same time. And it's a texture you, you don't hear too frequently in modern film scoring uh, or in many modern forms of music. Hmm. Um, 
it requires a bit of a active listening um, approach to it just to be able to follow the different melodies. But when you do that and you hear that and you have multiple streams of beauty coming into your ears at once, uh, the the impact is magnificent. Um, and so growing up, that, that was the kind of music that... Uh, I'd say solidified my desire to become a composer. What was it called? What was it called? Uh, so counterpoint is just a, a musical texture. Um, oh. So it's, it's like a compositional technique. It's it's the concept of having multiple melodies playing at once, as opposed to having chords and a melody on top. Um, Fascinating. Yeah. And so you don't get to do it too much. It, I mean, it's also a compositional technique. So all composers are kind of employing some of the rudiments of it. Um, but in the real height uh, or the artistic pinnacle, if you will, of counterpoint was really in the uh, Renaissance and Baroque period. Um, and so I, I was really drawn to that music. And I kind of thought that's what I was going to do. And I'm glad I didn't just focus entirely on that <laughs> because I don't think it's always appropriate. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Home scoring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Because, um, I mean, I'd have to hear an example of it. That's so interesting to me because I never really thought about that. It, is it? Is it just, is it like jazzy to a certain extent where there's just a lot of like improvisation happening or is it just like different, is it different so, themes that are running at the same time? It, it's yeah. A, it, sounds cha- yeah it sounds chaotic to me. When you're, when you're oh, no, I mean, you probably are familiar with it, just not spoken in such terms, but think of Bach, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, most of his music is based on counterpoint, um, you, you know, th- and that's like the most accessible, I think, uh, reference to give when people aren't familiar with uh, counterpoint. Um, and it's not necessarily chaotic, but if you listen to it and you hear all of a sudden, you know, that the oboes are playing this melody while the violins are playing this melody and, and then you listen to them separately. Got um, it. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Cool. Cause the way you were describing it, I was like, wow, this sounds like a, like a hurricane of music. It is, it is, but it's still quite beautiful in most uh, applications of it. Oh, very cool, man. So you got real nerdy about that, and that's <laughs> I did, real quick. Yeah. yeah, that's what triggered it for you. Um, <laughs> and so then, um, was there is there a music score? Is there a movie score that really affected you when you were growing up? Uh, that's interesting. No, so not really. Um, I mean, I'm sure they did. I, I loved movies. I've always, I always have. Um, and the, like I said, the funny part about it was those two uh, crafts were slightly uh, disaggregated from one another in my mind. You know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I was focused on on composing music. I just wanted music for music's sake and to find the emotion just in writing music. Um, and then it wasn't until I was older that I realized you know, there's this intersection of emotion and the human condition that can be portrayed through the culmination of art forms together. Yeah. Uh, and, and then I started, uh, you know, really appreciating, um, music as it, uh, interacts and, uh, functions in film. So not so much when I was a kid. Um, mm-hmm. but as I've gotten older, I mean, it's, it's like asking me which film scores I love or, or which film I love because of the score. It's, it just depends on the day, you know? Yeah, no, I, I mean, it's when people ask me what my favorite movie is. It's the same right. thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I'm, I'm always fascinated because I, I remember the moment that I was 
sort of like light dawns on marble head when I was watching, because I loved movies growing up and I would watch films and I would always, I never really assumed that Indiana Jones was inside my television set. I just didn't think about it. You know what I mean? And so I remember that one day where it was just like, oh shit, someone actually designs the outfits and someone does this. What? And it, like, it sort of blew my face open. And I didn't know if you had a moment like that with either music or, or film stuff. Uh, probably the first time I actually saw my score in a film, ah. right? I mean, that's when it becomes completely tangible. Yeah. Uh, because otherwise, and I, I think, you know, that's the beauty of filmmaking is you fully appreciate it once you've done it, um, you know? And so I'll, I'll hear a, an amazing film score even before I had uh, done my first feature. And I think, oh, that's great. They wrote some nice music. And then it wasn't until later I realized, wow, they probably did exactly what the director asked of them and revised it. And then this is what they came up with. That's amazing. Right. And yeah, so yeah. you just have these different experiences having done it. So I, I think it, it um, you know, became clear to me after the first time. And that, that was probably the most impactful moment for me. At the end of the day, it's got to be interesting because I've, I've talked to quite a few different composers and musicians uh, over the years. And um, it's this fascinating combination, at least from my angle as a director, where I'm, I'm always hunting out musicians or composers that inspire me and that do amazing music and stuff that you've either seen before or heard before. Um, and uh, But at the same token, you're, you're asking these folks that... Oftentimes, if it's just a musician, he, he or she will have written songs on their own and sort of gone through the entire writing process, the entire emotional process on their own and created this really great stuff. Then it's like, all right, how do I take this individual, this artistic individual, bring their process into what my process is? And then how do these two processes combine to actually uh, you know, work as a slave for the story and the emotions that are within the script? And so I've always found that that combination um, that is needed is really an artistic craft within itself. It isn't just making music, you know? Oh, yeah. No, there's a huge, I mean, there's a huge, uh, I'll put this delicately, I suppose. <laughs> there's a huge difference between uh, a film composer and uh, a recording artist or uh, a songwriter or a musician, you know? And, and some people are able to do both, for mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. uh, as you as you say, the the craft is so different. Um, it's I'm not really writing music for myself. Uh, in fact, I'm not <laughs> almost ever writing music for myself. I'm just <laughs> trying to help the director discover the music that they want to hear. Um, whereas musicians or recording artists or 
artists, if you will, as they're sometimes just referred to, they're making music uh, for themselves or for their audience. Um, and, and that's their guiding light. Um, and the skill set is, is quite different. You know, it's a much more collaborative process as you're speaking uh, to that part of it. Um, but it's also just a, a very uh, different technical skill set uh, often, you know, like dealing with with new edits and and uh, <laughs> yes, and the technical aspect of mapping out cues and and dealing with dialogue and um, all of the the things that you might not deal with if you were um, producing music um, that wasn't multimedia. Yeah, the the loose term that is picture lock these days. <laughs> <laughs> What's that? I haven't heard that. That's yeah. yeah, man. Uh, it, yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting. It seems I, I, like I have nothing but respect for folks that can create that music and create that emotional need um, for uh, for picture because uh, I, you know, being a guy that does horror films. You know, the horror films, when I cut horror movies and it's just a raw footage, they're boring as shit. <laughs> they're like the worst <laughs> thing to look at where you're like, okay, so here's a real slow shot of this person walking down a hallway with a knife. Like there's no <laughs> emotional context to any of this. And it isn't until uh, music starts to get laid down. It isn't until you start to put in those sound effects um, that the piece becomes visceral. Then you start to, at that point, you're just mining the emotions. You're mining that mm -hmm. adrenaline, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I find, be, like with everything in filmmaking, there are, there are a million different ways to do anything. Um, and so it's always fascinating when you're dealing with a composer who um, takes your rough notes, because everything's rough until you really see it. So you're like, I, I have a theory of what this should be and how this should feel. And I'm always really impressed with the focus the initial focus that, that composers that I've worked with have, where it's like, okay, bam, here's my system. Here's the way I do this to get started. Do you have a specific rhythm uh, when you get a project? Is there uh, a specific uh, series of steps that you fall back on to get started? Well, it really depends on what stage of the uh, filmmaking process I'm brought in on. Um, I'd say it's probably, you know, two thirds of the time I'm brought in after things are closer to being edited, you know, like a, a rough picture lock. Yeah. If you will. Um, but I've, I've been brought into projects where I got the script. Um, and so those two processes are different. So the easier one to explain, I suppose, and kind of encompasses both is, uh, when I do get brought on from the inception and that generally happens when somebody's a fan of your work to begin with, or you've done a previous picture for them. Yeah, um, yeah. They're not like casting a wide net to get pitch decks and demos from other composers and things or the cattle calls that we get for like studio productions. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so in those instances, I, I start sketching to the, the script, you know, so I'll start to develop uh, a sonic palette. Uh, if you will, um, maybe some thematic material. Uh, and that that's the closest I probably ever get to writing music for myself because there is no, um, first of all, there's enough time uh, to have the play with things. And then there's also no preconceptions for the director because they're bringing you on so early mm -hmm. that they haven't lived with it quite yet. Um, 
And that's actually the thing you really have to be careful about when you're working is that the director's always, in my experience, uh, been thinking about this far longer than anybody. <laughs> and, um, you know, they have ideas and you should respect that because they've lived with this so long. Um, and the only time I, I get to have that kind of freedom to, to really submit some, uh, you know, ideas that are unique to what I can bring to the table um, is when I get brought on very early on. And then the other process, uh, which is a bit more technical, I suppose, is when I am brought on after it's already been edited. Um, And then in that case, depending on the budget, to be honest with you, uh, I am looking for it to somewhat be locked um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because if there is no good budget for it and they don't have it locked, you're just looking at scoring it like six or seven times. <laughs> um, and, and that's fine. I, I've definitely done that. And for, for features that do have the budget and understand that, you know, um, like this is a job uh, and I'm going to spend time doing it, then if they just keep changing their mind and, and making different edits, I'm happy to do it. It's just taking me away from other projects or other income streams. Um and some of them are super okay with that. And sure. then, um, you know, that's just the business side of it. But once I get the cut, I bring it into my DAW, which is Pro Tools. Um, and the first thing I'm doing is mapping out all of the scenes. So I'll have my assistant go through and pretty much turn my grid onto, I don't know how nerdy I should get on this. Get nerdy. <laughs> yeah, no, no, get nerdy, man. It's great. Keep going. Okay, cool. Yeah, so we bring it into the DAW. You know, it's like our uh, NLE version if your audience list, mm-hmm. listening is more familiar with that you know that's what our daw is uh, it's just our editing software yep um and so we bring in the cut uh it's usually if it's a feature it's in reels sometimes it's in reels if it's serial as well um but we'll just bring in the cut or pieces of the cut into each individual session then i'll have my assistant go through and turn it to the frame rate and just start putting scene markers and uh important hit markers and some emotional touch points and occasionally i'll have spotting notes from the director not always nowadays actually sometimes they want to see what you do on your own and that's a little stressful that's a <laughs> another lot <laughs> conversation but yeah. usually i'll get spotting notes as to what kind of music they want where and the spotting notes i really like is uh the kind that i'm being treated like an actor you know this scene i want you to portray inner sadness or um you know this is a tension thing not uh use this instrument and make right. it like this. and you know here's the reference uh to the music i do get that too but th- I'm just saying what I love to get. Um, well, sure. You're, then, you're also dealing with micromanagement at that point too. <laughs> and yeah, this is, but, this is a whole other yeah. director's episode about like manage as a director, managing your micromanage, <laughs> like, yeah. really trying to figure out like, when am I stomping on creative creativity and when am I allowing creativity to grow? So yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. And I've had those too, you know, where I get a film that's been all tempt out. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's kind of the third one where I get something that's completely tempt out and that process is similar in which it's brought into the DAW, but instead of mapping out, uh, based on the cut on the, the edit entirely, I also have to map out the temp music because, uh, sometimes directors get what 
we the we musicians call and maybe never say it to directors' faces demoitis. <laughs> yeah, of course, uh, of course. <laughs> yeah, and they're just totally married to that temp music. And at that point, you do want to respect it because they have been living with it. They're just looking for something that's custom that follows that structure or vibe. Um, and then so you have to map that stuff out, and you're essentially flipping it, meaning making something very similar that follows similar chord structure and um, you know instrumentation and hits the same moments and the cut and everything and so that's a real technical exercise um it's a lot less artistic in the initial stages but once it's mapped out and stuff you could start to kind of deviate and and try to find meaning within the constraints that you were given yeah so to inject it here because I've, I've had other podcast episodes with composers that we've gone pretty deep into this and <laughs> my my, uh, I hate fucking temp tracks. I hate them. And, and when you're a director and you're trying to convince your producers, you're trying to convince the people that you're working with, Hey, please, for the love of Christ, can we bring the composer in earlier? It's, it's always a battle because it's a money game, right? So at the end of the day, it's like most producers look, uh, I'm not going to say most, a lot of producers look at composers as a post-production aspect, the same way they would look at the editor in the post-production, same way I would look at all that stuff. Um, and what that that makes sense monetarily, right? That makes sense when you're when you're checking off boxes in your budget. But uh, as a director, I'm continuously trying to describe to people what this thing in my head physically looks like, feels like, smells like, you know, the whole process. And you're on a struggle constantly, whether you're in the pitch stage and you're pulling images from other films for your pitch deck and you're like, I don't want to put this in here, but you know, this is the only image that I found of a guy profile. <laughs> and so like you're pulling in all this stuff to try to shape this vision. And the danger in that is, as you said, you get stuck on stuff. And then when you're handing a cut to a composer, you just... You feel like you've handcuffed them and asked them to paint a painting. You know, you're just like, here you go. Here's the walls. Here's the stuff. You have to stay within this confinement. This is where my beats are hitting. Um, mm -hmm. And it's frustrating. And I feel like anytime that I've worked with a composer in that manner, I've gotten ultimately great stuff. But the process takes three times as long. And mm -hmm. um, it feels restrictive. And there, there are always these moments that I've worked with composers where they're like, they give me a scene. I go, this just doesn't feel right. And they're like, yeah, because the cut requires this. And I'm like, well, why don't I just change the fucking cut? And have <laughs> you just do this? And I'm like, why are we here? Oh, shit. This is because we use this fucking dumb temp track. And so yep. it always comes back to that for me, man. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my opinion on Thames tracks uh, is different depending on who I'm talking to. So right now we're in a safe place. <laughs> uh, so my opinion's probably a little different. I mean, I get them all the time. Like I, I came up the uh, doing the first music to picture that I did for uh, commercials. Yeah, um, yeah. And so I'm very used to the uh, utilitarian aspect of of you know what music is doing and and how they treat composers, you know? Um, and this was before stock libraries were really a thing. Um, yeah. and so we, that's, you know, we were human stock libraries. Um, and so I, I respect the temp and I, I can get things incredibly close that in some ways it, it actually takes a whole lot less time, but, uh, it, it's not very artistic for the most point, mm -hmm. uh, most part. Um, and so then you think to yourself, well, is this director looking to make content Right? Or are they looking to make 
art that's also content. Yeah. <laughs> kind of, you know, it's like where, where's the distinction here? Because they're just uh, kind of devaluing the, um, you know, the art, art, art that I can bring the lifetime of experience, you know, making music. Um, and that's fine. And I, like I said, we're in a safe place here. So I'm saying that to a director, I would just respect what they're doing and, you know, provide a service for them. Sure. Uh, and the, the last point I would say on this, again, being in the safe place here, uh, in case anybody hears this and they agree, um, would be that the, the actual main reason to avoid using temp in my experience is that if your edit is so good without temp music, it's an amazing edit. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just uh, my, my music, anybody's music will just make it magnificent. But if it's great, with temp, you really don't know how good it is. Um, so that's kind of been my experience with it. That's a fascinating way to look at it. Yeah. I mean, and then oftentimes, because I've spent years and years editing, oftentimes you're using music to cover up <laughs> like what you, what you fucked up in the, in yes, the edit. Yeah. And so you're, yeah, you're like, okay, we'll montage this. <laughs> you know yeah. I mean? And you're like, oh shit. And, and then you, you're trying to distract the audience with, something familiar as far mm -hmm. as uh, the music's concerned. So, yeah, man, I, I, I completely agree with that. And and, and it, I guess the reason I bring it up on the show, and this is like the second time that we brought it up, is is that I think a lot of younger directors don't realize that you can ask for that. You can, you can form relationships with composers um, and musicians early on um, mm -hmm. And there has to be a, a sense of understanding. And then oftentimes if you're working on an indie level, you have to, you're working with someone that has to be like, okay, well, I'll, I'll come on pro bono in the beginning with the understanding that I'll be on at the back end there, 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 because the money is always the issue when it comes to mm -hmm. this kind of thing. Um, but if you do, the stuff is better. And I mean, I've been fortunate enough to work with some uh, composers that will just write stuff based upon the script and then just send it to me like a bunch of various ideas that aren't necessarily what the final pieces are going to be. But then I hear those as I'm, as I'm storyboarding and I hear those as I'm directing on set and I hear that stuff. And there's that story about, um, uh, what's his name? We directed the Joker and, and supposedly he was playing, uh, a track for Joaquin Phoenix in the bathroom when he did the dance bit. And that was a track that was sent to him from the composer initially. I think that's what the story was. And that's how they came up with that scene in the shooting of it. Um, and I think I'm, I'm, I'm rambling about this, but I think at the end of the day, we're all looking for that original feeling, emotional moment. And if you're temping in the score from Mad Max Fury Road, <laughs> then you're battling the fact that everybody that listens to that is thinking about Mad Max Fury Road. And and so yep. it becomes this conflict, you know? Yeah. I mean, I get it, you know, it, um, for different reasons, you know, specifically at the higher level where the editor is just worried that, you know, they have to deliver something that really hits for the director and producers. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense why they would temp it. You know, um, but again, on that indie level, I, I really think it's worth exploring, you know, because you're, you're trying to make something unique uh, so that it gets picked up. Um, and if you're temping it with something that's not unique, um, I think you're doing yourself a disservice there.
All right, it is time to take a moment and uh, let's talk a little bit about sponsorships. And as we do an episode about music com- composition and scoring, I know a lot of you listening to this are young composers, young folks that want to get into creating music for film. I get messages from you guys consistently. I try to respond to as many as I, excuse me, as many as I can. Um, but I think one of the most important things to remember as you're asking, like, what you know, DAW should I use? What nonlinear editing thing should I use? What operating system should I use? Uh, I would just say we're now at the point where you can choose whatever one works best for you. You don't have to just go with the most expensive piece on the market. You don't have to go with the trend. You can actually build yourself a PC that does it all really well for you. Um, and if you're someone that doesn't want to build your own PC, if you want to just go buy something, it shows up in a box, you set it up, head on over to PugetSystems.com. Those guys have built me uh, two amazing edit systems that I use every day. Gina's on one, I'm on the other one these days. Uh, I've got a, a system that runs 6K real time uh, with uh, multiple timelines and Premiere. I'm running uh, raw footage the bra files from my black magic 6k pro camera in there um i love it and the thing that i really love to figure out is that there are certain programs out there now where pcs you're you're actually able to read and write to mac formatted drives so if you're working with other vendors right you're doing a project and maybe you're shipping your stuff out to your composer who is working on a mac you can actually uh, be reading and writing and seeing his stuff on your PC, which is really great. You can't go the other way, by the way. So it's really nice to be able to do that. Uh, head on over to PugetSystems.com. If you are someone that is running a post-production facility, if you're someone that uh, that so many folks that are listening to the show um, run uh, color correction companies, grading suites, uh, editing uh, companies, uh, uh, music composition companies, uh, and you guys are still working on systems that you bought like 15 years ago, right? And you need that upgrade. And you're like, oh man, do I buy the newest Mac and all these dongles that I need to get and all these cables that I need to get to make this thing work? Don't do it, man. Check out PugetSystems.com. Write to these guys. They have a consultation. Uh, they love to talk to their potential customers and they'll be straightforward and honest with you. These guys don't manufacture equipment. They just put together computers and they do a real good job at it. Head on over to PugetSystems.com and have it change your business. Build systems that work for you and that you'll pay off quicker and make a profit on. Let's be real. Okay? PugetSystems.com. You heard me mention the people over at Blackmagic Design. Yes, they sponsor the show. Yes, my one camera that I have right now is a Blackmagic 6K Pro. I love the rig. It's awesome. We're going to be uh, uh, outfitting it with our gear from Small HD, with our gear from Teradek, with our gear from Wooden Camera. These are all sponsors that Gina has, um, which I don't mind plugging you guys on my show because I get to use the gear too, man. It's fucking, it's the shit. This is the the, the benefit of a power couple. <laughs> you know what I mean? Is that uh, her gear I get to use and she's working on a puted system right now. So... Yes, uh, we're going to put together that package. We'll put up pictures of that package. We love the people from Small HD. We love the people from Wooden Camera. We love the people from Teradek. Uh, we love all those guys. So very excited to be working with all of them, strapping it onto our Black Magic camera and being able to shoot the stuff that you see with it. Uh, believe it or not, some of those videos 
that we did that were supposedly dad cam, some of those shots were also shot with the black magic, which I had to degrade to look like dad cam, which that's the benefit of the raw stuff is I'm able to do that. Um, so definitely check it all out. Official sponsors of the show, brand new official sponsors of the show, are buds over at sharegrid.com. If you are someone that has a camera package, a lighting package, stuff that's just sitting in your closet, it's taking up space, and you're sitting around concerned that you don't have a job coming in this month, you're still trying to make rent, why not have that gear work for you? Uh, do you own camera equipment that you're not always using? At sharegrid.com, you can earn extra money renting out your camera gear to local filmmakers and photographers. It's a great thing to do. I also use ShareGrid to find those rare pieces of equipment, like that really odd fisheye, um, you know, still lens that I want to strap onto the DSLR or strap onto the Blackmagic. And a lot of rental houses don't carry those things. So going through ShareGrid, I get to find fellow filmmakers. I actually get to talk to fellow filmmakers because there's a whole community involved with it, which is interesting. ShareGrid vets every renter and gives them access to instant insurance to make sure your gear is always covered against damage or theft for 100% of its value. ShareGrid is the largest camera sharing community with over 150,000 creatives sharing over 1 billion worth of equipment. Sign up today at sharegrid.com backslash ILWP and get $100 worth of promotional credits for your listings. Also, just because I know a lot of you use ShareGrid to rent. There's a lot of producers listening to the show. Save our link, sharegrid.com backslash ILWP. Use it even if you're going to rent, right? Because it's going to tell ShareGrid that you guys heard it through our show. So please bookmark sharegrid.com backslash ILWP. Use that link every time you got to go to the website. You can list all types of gear, camera, lighting, audio, grip, props, even location, really anything production related. Don't wait, start pulling. Don't wait, start putting your gear to work. Go to sharegrid.com backslash ILWP. Speaking of our camera package, speaking of the Black Magic rig that we're doing, our other sponsor that is, <laughs> it's one of those things that you don't think about, right? So you're putting together your gear package, you're like, I'm going to buy this camera. Great. I'm going to buy this uh, support system. Great. I'm going to get this monitor. Awesome. How the fuck am I going to power it? right? And a lot of these things don't come with their own batteries, which is also fascinating. And then a lot of these different monitors and monitor companies, they're, they're working on older batteries. They're still using like old Sony rigs and all sorts of weird stuff. And even with the Blackmagic camera, the issue I have with it is their battery, right? It's got that internal battery that you can only charge in the camera. Drives me crazy. And so as we're building this rig, I'm like, I want a battery system that will power the whole fucking thing right? And I want to use a lightweight brick that is easily charged and quickly charged on a charger. So I don't have to wait eight hours for it to, to get another charge into it. So we did the research. We found our buds over at Indie Pro, right? So Indie Pro is the one-stop shop for all of your power needs for your pro video and DSLR cameras. Indie Pro offers a wide selection of professional V-mount slash gold mount batteries and chargers. I think we're using gold mount stuff for a new one battery adapter plates, regulation camera uh, cables, and many other unique power accessories. They have a lot of really fascinating like uh, power regulation cables on their website, stuff that I didn't even consider, 
uh, definitely head to the website and look at it. It's wild shit, actually. These solutions are compatible for most popular brands on the market today. So if you're using a Sony, a Canon, Blackmagic, Panasonic, numerous others, uh, the benefit of this company is that they're located 30 minutes away from New York City. IndiePro manufactures and assembles many of their power solutions in-house. So these guys are making it all in-house. This gives them the ability to customize any of their power solutions to fit their customers' needs. So you should probably talk to these guys if you have some weird custom package. Any of you assistant camera operators out there, any of you camera operators and DPs out there, if you're trying to figure out a custom way to power your shit, I'd also reach out to these guys. Um, we are offering a special discount code today for 20% off your entire first order from IndiePools.com. Use the promo code LOVE20. That is the promo code L-O-V-E-20 at checkout to receive the discount. Again, we are offering 20% off of our power solutions at IndieProTools.com with the code LOVE20. Love these guys. Excited to be working with them. They are supporting the show. So they're not just sending us gear, but they're also supporting the show. Um, so help me out. Click the links. Go there. Check out their stuff say stuff, follow them on Instagram. I, I mean, it does so much for the show with any of these sponsors. If you head on over to Instagram and go, hey, we heard you want to love with the process. Thank you for supporting the show. Thank them for supporting the show. If you can't afford to help us out, that is the simplest thing you can do. And there are so many of you now that are listening on your phone and you're staring off in the abyss and you're scrolling through Instagram. I know you are. I can see you. I see you. So just go to our sponsors' Instagram accounts and say, hey, thank you for supporting and love of the process. That would mean a lot to me. That'll mean a lot to them. And then we're all part of the same family, man. We're all hanging out and having beers together. You know what I mean? Um, let's see. Oh, I don't want to forget them. I talked about them at the beginning of the show. And they're probably the most uh, current or the most, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Jesus, my brain just stopped. I mean, it makes the most sense to talk about these guys on this episode. I'm talking about our friends over at Jambox.io. Um, I was telling you guys about the uh, Entertainment Weekly stuff that Gina and I just did. We used sound effects and score stuff from Jambox. I love these guys. Head on over to Jambox.io right now and look at what is available to you for stock music. It blew my mind. And I know it seems a little weird that I'm talking to a composer on the show. And we're talking about the power of composing and oftentimes the power of not using, um, you know, temp tracks and everything. Well, the reality is, is that not always can we afford that, right? You guys can't afford that all the time. Neither can I. Sometimes you have a, a corporate client or a commercial client that comes in and they're like, I don't want to pay for a composer. So then what do you do with all this beautiful footage you have? What do you do with all that stuff? You're fucked, right? Because now you have to go to some shitty website that has some really crappy sounding music and it's just going to make everything look like crap. It just does. There's nothing worse than finding some badly done, almost sounding like Blade Runner keyboard thing that you throw underneath and it just feels like the cheaper chicken, right? It feels like the CVS brand of cleaning products. <laughs> you know, when you go into a place and it's the store brand, that's what it feels like, right? So why not find great original music by really fantastic artists that are specifically creating that music specifically for Jambox? Head on over to Jambox and just go through their music catalog. Check out their prices. They have a lot of really great subscription plans, 
really great affordable subscription plans for people that are just doing podcasts, for people that are trying to make cash on this stuff, working with corporate clients, and for students, the student rate alone is worth it. I mean, if you're just someone that is doing podcasts, it is so worth it. You get access to their entire catalog and you can play that music on your show. Jambox.io, I don't know how else to tell you guys this. It will change the way your work sounds. It will change the way your work looks with good music. You know what I mean? Head on over there and check it out. All right, let's get back to it. Roman. When you are looking at a script, let's say let's say I send you a script and you're going through the process of the script, are, are you are you scoring based upon the emotions you feel when you read that script or is it triggered by environments that are written in that script and you're like, oh, this takes place in the Middle East, so maybe I should work with some Middle Eastern instruments? Is it, is it, what's your process when you're doing that? So I'm usually uh, in this kind of like sketching scenario uh, we're talking about, you know, where I get you know, this is pre-production, right? Essentially. Yes. Um, and I have the script. I'm looking for underlying, uh, you know, subtext, right? So it's not like, uh, here's this character's theme or setting place because that can happen a little bit later, I think generally, but it's like, what is the, the crux of this? Is this a story about the loss of love? Is mm-hmm. this a story about, uh, is it, you know, comedic piece, whatever it is, what's the underlying subtext of it. And if I can kind of dial that in, uh, then I'll start sketching based on that. And so those will be the themes. I I really like, um, writing the virtues, if you will, you know, like, um, the underlying character, um, uh, attributes, um, or, even narrative attributes, you know, like I was saying, if, if this is a story of lost love, right. uh, that has a very particular sound to me. And then maybe it's, uh, you know, I'll expand upon that. And if this is based in a specific place, uh, like I did this film uh, called Urakan on HBO Max, and that was a film that I got brought on from the script. Um, so I went through this process with that. And actually what happened there was the, the the film was supposed to, and it didn't make it into the film uh the scene that was written in the script nor did my music that was written for the scene but it was supposed to start off with a nietzsche quote hmm. uh and so basically i was scoring just a quote <laughs> and the quote was about the endless abyss the uh if you stare long enough into the the abyss you become the abyss right right uh, and which is interesting because it reminds me of your film that i just watched uh yesterday Oh, which um, which film? Uh, Twelve kilometers. Oh yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> staring into the abyss, and, um, <laughs> but you know, so I I was taking this quote, and what does that mean? What does that sound like to stare into the void and to become the abyss? Right, and mm-hmm. so that kind of thing. What it does is it forces you then to look for interesting uh, instrumentation, interest 
interesting harmonic content uh, to write some compelling melodic material. Um, and so I wrote like a four minute overture for that. Um, and what ended up happening was the director loves certain sounds that I had in there. He loves certain uh, gestures that I used. And that actually served as the basis. And like I said before, the sonic palette uh, for the entire film and um, pretty much just had to score using those tools once the film was shot. Oh, fascinating. You mentioned briefly that, uh, you know, you know, sound of, of lost love that you ha- that you have an idea of what that sounds like. Where does that come from you? Do, like, is it, are you sort of tapping into your own personal experiences with lost love? And are you trying to recreate sonically what it feels like to have your heart drop out from underneath you? And are there certain instruments that you attach to certain emotions? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think that's one of the the things that makes music so amazing is that, uh, and specifically doing it in this for a long time, this is what I was saying about like not using temp music and relying on the human experience of an individual. Yeah. Because for me, as I've gotten older and as I've lived more, um, I find my music to be even more meaningful. Um, in not that young composers can't write amazing stuff. <laughs> uh, I, I'm still probably considered young, um, but I have more life experience to draw on. Um, but also it's just like uh, music and music education and music theory is similar to philosophy in the sense that you can study the greats before you um, and they've lived a lifetime. And by studying them and listening to their music, you can take something away from their lifetime, yeah. uh, just part of it. So you can live many more lifetimes than you would have if you hadn't been educating yourself with it. So um, I draw not just on my own history, but on a larger history of uh, composers that I've studied. Um, and, you know, a lot of times, you know, in this sketching scenario, sure, it's me, but sometimes it, it is a collaboration. You know, what what does somebody else, the director specifically, or if it's something serial, the producer or the showrunner, uh, mm-hmm. what do they find to be sad and compelling? And I'll have that conversation with them because maybe it's something wildly different to me. Mm-hmm. Um, than me. Uh, so, you know, I'm always looking there. I, for me, if, if we were going to geek out, it's specific types of chords. Okay. Um, it's specific harmonies and specific melodies over top of them resolving or not resolving in certain ways. Um, that are very melancholy and sad for me. Um, and that's actually my favorite kind of music to be writing. <laughs> uh, it's just really kind of sad, uh, melancholy music, uh, because I think beauty and sadness and love are pretty much sonically very similar.
Fascinating. And is there a reason why you're obsessed with that stuff? Is it like personal experiences that put you there? Or do you just like the way you feel when you hear it? Yeah, I don't know. I think I've been obsessed with, like, I think the meaning of uh, of life is love. Um, I've always kind of felt that way. I don't know if it's just because, again, I've always had this lifelong obsession with composers and composing. And if you read about composition or composers' lives, it's always very, and, and some of it's, you know, romanticized, which is actually a great word to be using here, <laughs> uh, or, you know, hyper-romanticized this whole artistic process. But I do really think that uh, a lot of great artists really um dealt with concepts of love, lost love, sadness, beauty. Um, and so it's just a great tradition of, of the human condition and exploring it through art that is kind of um, resonated with me. Well, dude, it makes sense, right? I mean, this is the same thing I, I feel and I go through at the same time. Like I'm almost excited in sort of a sick, twisted way. I'm, I'm almost excited when I get to have some severe emotional issue mm -hmm. like if it you know dealing with near-death experiences or dealing with severe heartbreak or loss I, there's a there's a piece of me that always kicks in and goes well dude just pay attention to what you're mm -hmm. what's what you're feeling and what it sounds like and what's going on right now because this is so valuable to mm -hmm. you as you're trying to translate you know a series of words off of a page that are like he feels heartbroken you know and you're mm -hmm. like okay well, what what does that feel like? What does that sound like? Um, and and then does this feel and sound this way for a lot of people? And what do most people feel when they're doing this? I, like, how do most people feel when they're hungry? And and what does that sound like? You know, and, and so, of course, we're over romanticizing all this stuff because we're examining it. And at that mm -hmm. point, we're translating it, you know? So yeah. it totally mm -hmm. makes sense to me. And it, I think the best storytellers are obsessed with the specifics of life, because that's our toolbox. That's where we're pulling our shit from, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, emotions, um, pretty much what it's all about. I mean, there is something great, as you're saying, if, uh, you know, is this the same way other people are hearing it, um, where because there is such this great body of work, you know, f other films that do it, you can explore what has resonated mm -hmm. large uh, with a large population. And, you know, tr tropes work uh, and there's a reason that they do and there's a reason to uh, use them again, but in a new light. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I love the emotion uh, in general and those are kind of the projects I'm attracted to. Um, I've done a lot of not full of emotion things and uh, it's exciting too. You know, sometimes it's just for fun, yeah. right? The, not, not the project was for fun, but the film was about just, you know, having fun for the audience. Uh, and I love those projects too, but nothing's more creatively satisfying than really exploring emotions. What's your favorite piece that you've done recently? What's the one that you think has the most emotion embedded in? Wow. Uh, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> that's... <laughs> Uh, I wish I could, well, I probably can, but you know, it's again, it's like the day that you're asking me this. Um, and yep. so right now I'm working on a, uh, this is kind of a, a weird, uh, one to say this for, um, but I'm working on a nature documentary, um, for mm -hmm. Nat Geo and, uh, there's something so beautiful about, um, like 
some of these emotional scenes between animals. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I know it's not exactly, you know, um, the true human condition seeing it's not humans, but I suppose it is very similar. Um, oh, dude, I, dude, I would say that it's a huge human condition because ultimately it's, you're not scoring it for the animals. <laughs> you're scoring <laughs> it for the emotional response that, that the humans are giving animals. And they, there's already a, like a oversaturated sponge of emotion for most people when they look at some cute animal that pops its head up from behind a bush somewhere. And so yeah. how are you playing with that sonically, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, that I, again, if you would ask me maybe two days ago, it would have been this other film that I'm doing, which is a family drama because there's so much sadness and somebody's dying in that film. Uh, and, you know, to the point where I'm like crying, trying to do it. But then today I'm like, it's the beauty of birth or, or rebirth. Um, and, and that's got me all teared up. Uh, <laughs> it, it just depends on the day. <laughs> I just imagine your workstation, cup of coffee, computer, keyboard, box of Kleenex. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, yes. Yep. That's great. <laughs> Ah, man. Well, yeah, so fascinating. So you're doing some Nat Geo stuff. That's cool. And then um, how did you get started initially? Were you just uh, working uh, for short films and working for film students initially? Like, how'd you get in? Uh, yeah, so it was kind of a long, arduous uh, process. I mean, I always wanted to be a composer, as I said. And then I went to college uh, for composition and music theory, Um and when I went to school for it, I, I, I lived in New York City and I was working as a, what's called a music transcriber, which means I was listening to music and writing out the sheet music. So oh, there's a few cases why you would do that. Uh, you either work for another composer who maybe doesn't read sheet music, you know, like uh, somebody who's less classically trained and they want an instrument, uh, you know, like an orchestra to play their uh, composition, I guess we can call them compositions, you know, their music that they've composed without writing. Mm -hmm. um, or sometimes it was, uh, you know, actually a classical composer who didn't have time to do all of their sheet music. And so I, I was doing that for a long time. And eventually I started doing arrangements for some of these uh, artists, musicians. Um, and so after I would write the arrangements, then I would take them to the recording studio. And then after a while I was, at that point kind of becoming a music producer and cause I was always in the studio and people were playing my arrangements that I wrote for other clients. Um, and at a certain point it made more sense to open up my own recording studio because I was just losing so much money going to, uh, other recording studios. So I opened up a recording studio in Manhattan, uh, with a partner. Mm -hmm. And, uh, once we opened the recording studio, it was kind of like we did everything that a recording studio does, except that we were the ones doing it. You know, this is like, uh, you know, small business owner 101 kind of thing. You got to do all the work, right? <laughs> yeah, hundred yeah, uh, percent. And so our small business in this case was being a recording studio. So we were recording for artists, podcasts, voiceovers, all that stuff. Um, and bands, of course. Um, and I was writing songs for, um, recording artists, but we were also doing a lot of stuff for commercial, uh, you know, advertising agencies. And so they'd come in, they record their voiceover to a commercial. And then they were like, can you guys, do you have any music for this? Can you score this? And then we started writing music for tons of commercials. And eventually some of those, um, 
Well, this branched out in a few ways, but one way was some of those directors from the commercials started doing their own narrative uh, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. work. And so you'd get the call there. Um, And then also I was writing music for a lot of artists that came to the studio. And sometimes those artists might have a breakout. I started doing a lot of songs for reality TV stars. um, And it was (laughs) kind of a funny part of my life that we don't have to get into here, but uh, yeah, I bet. I bet. (laughs) Yeah. I've written a lot of uh, songs for uh, reality TV people and like uh, you know, that was a whole, I, I used a pseudonym. I still do when I do that kind of work to disaggregate it from my film scoring work, but it kind of came full circle because a lot of those people ended up on TV shows that they had clout in uh, mm-hmm. or getting their own shows and they asked me to score them. Um, so it kind of went in a few different directions, but the, I guess the short answer to your question is I got into it by um, just working in the music industry long enough. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's kind of the deal, right? It just takes time. It takes time and contacts yep. and connections. And and then uh, you get lucky with somebody or you get mm-hmm. lucky with a few people. And then you're on to the next thing and keep pushing and keep pushing. Pretty much. Yeah, man. Yeah. Um, well, dude, it's, it's, it's rad to hear of your success. And it's really nice. I mean, because I'm sure a lot of that early stuff was – you know, I'm sure a lot of it was soul sucking to a certain extent. It happens. It happens. <laughs> you, know, you know, but you know, it's still nice to hear that you know you're emotionally connected to your work, and you don't become too bitter. You don't become too jaded. Um, because I've I've talked to a lot of folks that have been in the other scenario of it, where you know the business can be so intense that you walk out of the back end forgetting the emotional context of it for yourself. How do you stay emotionally grounded with your work? Um, yeah, that's, that's a wonderful question. Um, and I'm sorry to hear of the others. Um, but I totally get that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I I think there's two ways really, or maybe three ways. I mean, one, the easiest thing to do is to just have a variety of projects. Um, and that's something that I, I learned, um, Well, I guess there's a few answers to this. One is that having been a recording engineer and music producer for, I I was at the the recording studio still there. I still own it in in New York. I just moved to LA and now we have other engineers, but Mm -hmm. being in sessions and for a decade, essentially, uh, where artists of all walks of lives uh, of life who had varying degrees of music education and experience, uh, being there for a decade, being told what to do by them, you develop this um, mindset that what you're doing isn't about you. Mm. And if you just remember that the whole time and say, I'm making music for a living, but it's not my music, it's somebody else's, do I want to be a part of that? And if your answer is yes, you want to be a part of that, and it's a beautiful thing, you're never going to get uh, emotionally distraught. Um, It's you know, that's not what it's about. But if you go into it with all sense of ego and um, think it's your music and everything, yeah, it's you're not going to be in it very long. So that keeps me grounded, just the mindset that I go into it with. And then the other thing that's really helpful is just having a variety of projects. Um, and that's also something I learned back then too, which would be, you know, I'd have nine hours of recording sessions back to back and maybe the first session wasn't so great. And I'd be like, well, this is just my morning. So, (laughs) you know, my next session could be really cool. Um, And, you know, you just do your best in in that way. And it would really never get you down. Just 
keep smiling. You're working on music. It's like somebody's paying you for your your musical experience. It's it's amazing. I don't think I could ever get bummed out about it. And um, you know, there's every reason to to get bummed out about it. Half of the things that I write need to be revised or they get muted. Um, that's right. just the nature of it, right? right? And so if I was sensitive about that, this wouldn't really work out so well for me. Um, yeah, I think those are my two main main tips there. Yeah, it's good. I mean, it, it, it crosses over into all sorts of other avenues is of art. When you're when you're starting to do art commercially and you're starting to do art for other folks, then you really have to sort of be able to step back. And I ran into that a lot as a commercial director, where it was like, "Hey, this isn't about me. This isn't my show. You know, I'm just here mm-hmm. to to bring something to this, and that's really it. And half the time, it isn't even to bring something to this. I'm just here to to guide the ship." that is being already driven by other creative people. Uh, and once you sort of wrap your head around that, you go, oh, all right. All right, well, cool. Let me have fun in this scenario that I'm in right now. And let me let go of this stress that most of the time I'm putting on myself where I'm yep. like, I have to be, in a, this has to be amazing. And this has to redefine my career. Nah, does everyone? No, I don't think so, you know? <laughs> and, and so then it, once you let go of that stuff, you feel enlightened to be able to look around and and I always found that I start to learn these little nuggets that I'm like, Ooh, when I do do something interesting, that's coming with me and this is coming with me and that person's coming with me too, you know? So, yeah. 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 We we have, uh, most composers have a little library of tracks that didn't make it. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, I, I think to your point there that, that, technique or, or that approach is coming with you for your own project. That's, that's a super healthy way to deal with, um, you know, something, your ideas not being received well for a certain project, um, that, yeah, you know, that just, that just goes in, in the, uh, the bank here, you know, I'll save that for next time. Well, yeah. Cause you hear stories at, at even the largest levels, right? I mean, like one of the more fascinating stories for me because i wish i heard what it sounded like but was like uh johan being hired to do blade runner what is it 2049 the last blade runner Mm -hmm. movie and supposedly had scored that whole film and then uh it was decided that it didn't work and so that entire score was thrown out and they brought in a whole new composer for it Mm -hmm. i want to hear what that fucking score sounds like (laughs) there's a piece of me that wants to hear that you know yeah, I, I could be wrong, but I, I'm pretty sure they somebody tried to release that as an NFT like last week. Really? Is, yeah, and and it made all the waves in you know the composer world too. Um, I mean, it's not that unusual. I think for a score to get thrown out and somebody to get rehired for it, um, the scary part is just that then. Like, I don't know the contract that they had with that, but a lot of times that stuff might end up still being owned by not the composer. Yes, right. It gets locked in a vault somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's always, you know, that that's the sad part about why there is money involved with all of this because somebody else is owning it, you know? Um, and oh, that that, that kind of kills me. Yeah, um, yeah, I've definitely had that happen to my own work many times.
right, someone pays you, you make this stuff, and then they just seal it away somewhere. And I'm like, okay. And that, yeah. th that's happened with movies. That's happened with all sorts of stuff where you get paid to do stuff, and you're like, can, yeah. can this get out? <laughs> can the emotions <laughs> that we put into this get out in one way or another? You yep. know? Uh, you know, thinking about that, it's like, can there be a Johan fucking Blade Runner vinyl that gets put out? Because <laughs> there's so many of us that are like, what did that sound like? <laughs> you know? yeah. So yeah, man, it's it's tough when you're when you're for hire, you know, when you're a for mm -hmm. hire contractor, and and it's all in the contract that they own everything. You got to be careful with that, I think. Um, yeah, dude, yeah, yeah. So what's what's the uh, what's the big goal for you? Is there is there a, a new step that you you're trying to reach in your career at this point? Like where you, where do you want to be? That's a great question. Um, no, uh, actually I'm, I'm really enjoying where I am at the moment. Um, so pretty much more of the same, you know, the, yeah, <laughs> I don't know <laughs> that, um, I'm, I'm quite content at the moment. Uh, I have some, some goals, you know, personal goals, I suppose. I, I work a lot, um, as I'm sure everybody in this industry does. Um, and balancing those things. I, I've taken a few less projects, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. That's kind of been the goal a little bit. Um, you know, last year I did like four or five feature films. And wow. I did a lot of shorts on top of it. Wow. Um, and I'm trying to dial back some of the shorts that I do. Um, because, uh, I find that when people frame them as shorts, uh, sometimes it's different than when they frame them as pilots. And so <laughs> I've been going after more of the people who are framing things as pilots, if it's not a feature, yeah. um, yeah. just for a little work-life balance. But, uh, I'm having a really hard time dialing back that because I love working with filmmakers. And so every time somebody approaches me, even if it's not like a studio feature or an indie feature that already has distribution or something, I still can't say no just because I'm addicted to the process. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm in love with the process, if you will. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. I just, so maybe my goal would be to uh, select my projects a little bit more discerningly. Um, and that is in no way related to the quality or people I've worked with in the past. I love them all. But, uh, you know, just to, to find the right projects, um, you know, and I think that's probably consistent with everybody's uh, goals in this industry. Yeah, I mean, it's time management, right? So you you hit a point when you're younger where you're like, I'll take anything that comes my way. And, you know, from my experience, the positive aspect of that is, is that you're meeting as, me as many new creatives as you can, and you're forming relationships and you're getting that experience to try things out. But then you just sort of hit a point where you're like, wow, I have so much shit that I'm trying to manage right now and nothing ever really goes on schedule. And so stuff starts to overslide each other and, and it starts to really affect the quality of the other pieces around you. And, and there was a period of my career where the power of saying no, like having the ability to say no to stuff actually opened me up to be better at the things that I was doing. So I could be more hyper-focused on, uh, you know, quality and of course, you know, I never start out, and I'm sure you're the same way. You never start out thinking like, hey, this one's going to be less than this one. But it's just the reality of the scenario where all of a sudden schedules are pushed on top of each other. Everybody, for some fucking reason, has the same delivery date, which just so happened to be the date you booked your vacation six months ago. Yeah. <laughs> and so everything's like crammed right up on top of itself. And, and so quality ends up suffering there. 
And it's with, in my prior experience, it was always the tiny jobs, like the little jobs that are like, this is going to be such a great opportunity for you. This is going to be the best thing in the world for you. Those always end up being a bigger pain in the ass than, oh, yeah. than the big gigs for some reason. I don't know why. Um, yeah, m- maybe again, because, well, I don't know. I, I th- This could be unfair to certain uh, people, perhaps, if they ever heard this, but uh, the people who want to not pay for what you're doing, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, like you, as you're saying, you know, uh, the smaller jobs and there'll be a good opportunity. Oh, it won't take you much time. Can you just help? on this. And then they're the people who have a hundred thousand revisions because they're not cognizant of how valuable time is. Yeah. Those tend to be early projects for a lot of people though. So, you know, like earlier filmmakers, filmmakers younger in earlier in the career, I guess, maybe not necessarily younger. Um, It's, it's hard to, to deal with those because if the passion's there, you definitely want to be involved with it, but. Well, yeah. And then you're learning, when you say earlier in the career, let me just further explain that to the young folks that are listening to the show. The thing that's great about working for paid clients or the thing that's great about working on a schedule, even though it seems like it's not, even though schedules feel like they're restrictive, is that it forces you to be very decisive. And so you're, you understand the value behind time, especially if there's a meter running. And you're mm-hmm. sitting there going, okay, this is costing how much per hour? So then you start to become a lot more uh, judicious. That's not the right word. You start becoming a lot more effective with your decisions. And it forces you as the director and as the creative to do a lot more homework and to actually think about stuff before you start running your mouth. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so yeah. It helps everybody else that's working with you. And I, when I was younger, suffered from that where I was like, this would be super simple. And then there were all these sort of complications coming down the pike. And I was saying things too early to my composers or to my collaborators. And then they were super jacked up because they're excited to do it. And then they're running down the completely wrong pathway. And I have to go back and go, whoa, 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 stop going in that direction. We have to come back in this direction. And I just learned like... You know, it's almost better sometimes to go, give me a day or so before I even respond to any of this. Let me process all the options available to me, and then I'll get back to you. Um, Mm -hmm. Because you're just not tiring out that person where they're just running from one end of the room to the other end of the room to make you happy. And the next thing you know, they're like, I've been running all fucking day and we've gotten nowhere. (laughs) Yeah, I think what we're talking about here is just being professional, right? Yeah, uh, that's a very nice, decisive way to say that. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and and maybe that's the answer to you know what what we were talking about earlier about not taking certain projects because I, I love that discussion, you know, as a filmmaker, um, mm-hmm. which is like, what's the right project? Um, should you take everything? Should you take you know just one or two? Um, and I think you should probably take everything that is professional. Um, and that's why it's hard sometimes to take those no budget things, yeah, um, yeah. because the implication there is that maybe it's, you know, more of a hobby than a profession and that might, uh, you know, kind of, uh, you know, seep into the, the practices, the creative practices, the time management practices of the people who are making it. Yes. Yes. And you're doing a very good job of being nice about it. You're being a very good job of being nice about it. But at the end of the day, it's like, don't waste our fucking time. It's what it comes down to where it's like, 
understand that everything takes a lot of time to do. And if you're reaching, this is something that I try to understand completely when I, whenever I work with collaborators, that just to get someone to read a script takes time get, mm -hmm. to, get to get somebody to try to find the emotion in something to be invested in that thing and to think about thing really takes time. And, um, it's always this difficult balance as a, as a director or, or someone that's trying to build a ship and then get the ship sailing is that you have to get folks interested early. And then if you get certain folks interested early, then that may trigger the funds to come through, whether you're talking about talent or actors or everything else. So it's this delicate balance of like, how excited do I get you about this? And then just sort of warning your collaborators, like, this is very early on, so don't go too crazy. But there's a yep. sense of excitement that you should have here. But please, let's manage your time. All the way, <laughs> all the way down onto sets with actors, where if you're uh, doing a performance with an actor who is ready to give you, you know, a 100% and you're doing a wide shot take where you don't even see their face and they're over in the corner crying and, and, and putting everything into it, you have to be able to manage their time better and say like, look, don't do that here. Wait for the close up on that. Save your shit. You know, you, you don't have to cut your knuckles on the ground. Like I, this is funny story uh, when I was doing, um, I don't want a tangent, but this is funny story when I was doing my Punisher fan film years ago and I was working with my friend Nick who was starring in it. And he was so pumped about being the Punisher. He was so emotionally invested with this guy. And I there was a sequence where I said, your hands are going to show the years of torment and the years of struggle and the years of training. It's all going to be on your hands. And he was so excited about that. He goes, this is going to be really great. And I go, okay, great. And so I walk away and he comes back in and his knuckles are all bloody. And I was like, what did you do to your hands? He's like, I ran them across the concrete outside. And I was like, why did you do that? Like, you, there's a makeup artist for that, my friend. <laughs> like, what are you doing? And it, it was at that moment that I just realized that like, oh, no, no, no. Like people get so invested in mm -hmm. your idea and in your passion that you have to be responsible with that. And you have to have an understanding that you know, they're looking up to you or they're looking to you for direction or for, for inspiration, be gentle with their time and be gentle yeah. with their emotions, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, a, a plus to, to that actor. Yes, uh, he's still, we're still really great friends and he's, yeah, he's, wow. he's crushing it. I don't see him smashing his knuckles anymore, but he's crushing it these <laughs> yeah. days. He's, he's doing a really good job. Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what a wacky day that was. Anyway, um, this has been wonderful, dude. I, we're pushing an hour here, man. This has been really good. Um, before we uh, wrap this up, I would say that um, what are you listening to? Like, what are you what are you listening to these days um, for fun? Like, what, what kind of stuff do you go to? So that doesn't happen too much nowadays. Uh, honestly, I listen to a lot of silence outside of work. Um, so <laughs> the, the beautiful thing about what I do is that there are a lot of great opportunities to listen to things that I didn't write because of, you know, one, the conversation we had about temp scoring. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I have to listen to a lot of music that uh, is a reference for me. Sometimes it's not a temp score. I, like, I don't hate 
when people have uh, references because their musical tastes are a lot better explained to me by just listening to a piece of music than them trying to, you know, become a music theorist overnight and give me an analysis of it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, but to cut you off, there's a big difference between those two. There's a difference between someone putting a temp score down where the cuts and the edits are are specifically laid out to a specific tempo. That's really like forcing you into a structure, but Oh yeah. Sending someone a playlist and saying, this is kind of the mood and the vibe. What do you think of this? I think that's strong to do. Right? Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, I still like it less than when they're like, whatever you want to do. Right. But uh, <laughs> even then, you know, uh, there's still a bit of exploration involved. But um, so I listened to a lot of um, other film score um, because I mean, I actually don't necessarily think that's a great thing um, because you want to find something unique. Right. And searching in what's contemporary you're more likely to land on a trend, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, just because it's what's current. So it's more likely, statistically speaking, that there's more of that at the given moment. So I do try to stay away from, I used to only listen to like film scoring radio, <laughs> which <laughs> is is a really bad idea for a film composer because you, well, it's not bad for like educational purposes. It, it's bad eventually to just, you know, exclusively listen to said uh music yeah Yeah. um so uh i listen to all kinds of temp stuff all the time that i have to um and then i'm listening to my own music uh for about nine hours a day 10 hours depending on the day you know it's 14 (laughs) 15 if we're in like a stretch here so uh after that i don't want to listen to anything really um silence is amazing and the (laughs) i'm sure most composers have this but as soon as i turn off the music it just keeps playing yeah you know i just like when you spend hours working on seconds you just hear those seconds over and over Over again over again yes (laughs) Uh, so, so not too much to answer your question i do listen to a lot of classical still um it's 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 like the equivalent of having a glass of water after uh, you've had something very flavorful, you know, it just cleanses the palate. Um, so pure um, mm-hmm. in, in intention often that that does it for me, but uh, yeah, a lot of silence for sure. <laughs> well, Roman, this has been great. This has been really good. Nice to have you on the show. I, I love getting nerdy about music and composing and I love hearing about your process. Um, and, uh, you know, your work is fantastic. I was just listening to the AI love you stuff. That uh, you did. Well, yeah. That's not classical at all. No. That's, that's <laughs> the opposite. No, very like eighties inspired, very synth wavy stuff. And I yeah. thought it was really great, man. I thought that was really oh, great. Thanks. Yeah. 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 That was uh, a stark contrast from the last few I did. So I, I really, really loved that one. Well, when you put that one together, did you like dive deep back into the eighties or was it just you creating what you remember from that time period? Like what was your process on that one? So that one's interesting because, so, you know, I touched on it briefly, but I used to do all these songs for reality TV stars and um, most of that was dance music. So I, I had a few hits if you can call them that, you know, like billboard charting songs that were dance songs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was, I'm, I'm pretty versed in that, uh, genre, but I, I typically don't get asked to do it in films. Um, and that's kind of why I had a pseudonym just so that people kn- didn't know I did that stuff. Um, but these people knew I did that stuff. And that was one of the draws, uh, you know, it was that they went with me 
because mm-hmm. I could do it. Um, and so for that, I didn't necessarily go back and listen to specific synthwave music. The approach there actually was, um, th- at least from where I was sitting, you know, and, and that whole process was very interesting. It would take a long time to tell you how that one went down, but the, <laughs> they gave me a lot of freedom to do what I wanted with it, but they wanted to make sure it was vintage and they wanted to make sure that it, spoke to the AI part of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and the vintage part, why we went kind of eighties with it was because it's a rom-com. And so when you get people in a nostalgic mood, they're more receptive to rom-com-y, com- right. comedic, yeah. comedy, you know, rom-comisms. Yeah. 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 Uh, because they're in that nostalgic place, right? So they can feel it. And a lot of the great rom-coms that we grew up with were in the 80s. Um, and so that's why we went kind of 80s with it. And Synthwave has this really great, like, you know, uh, I'd say kind of retro futuristic feel to it, right? It's not mm-hmm. actually vintage. Um, and so that's that's why we went with that plus... I was using all kinds of analog and digital synths for different parts of the film because the AI comes to life in that. So I was using digital synths for certain parts, morphing into actual violins, and then analog synths for when things were a lot more cold. Um, so that's cool. It, it was a really fun process on that one. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool when you can do stuff like that. That's really behind the scenes and really there to stimulate you more than anything else. <laughs> yeah, or it's it's just getting me thinking in different ways, and that, that's kind of what I was talking about with the sketching right if you find that underlying meaning um then and then this one it was ai coming to life right and then so you think about organic sounds because that's living and then you think of electronic sounds because that's cold and uh electronic and where do you where do you blend those and how do you blend them over the course of the film um and then the content as to meaning what those instruments play is based on carrying the story along, you know, but sure. the instrumentation choices that was based on the uh, subtext of that film. Fascinating. And generally, how long does it usually take you to do uh, a feature? Uh, d- uh, well, so anywhere from like two weeks to a year. So it's, it's just when people bring you in, how much time they have and uh, how many revisions they have right um and then sometimes it's like how quick they are so with ai love you i actually did the score probably in two months but there were revisions to the sound mix um and there was you know uh netflix you know that that film was released on netflix Mm -hmm. um so there was a lot of like meeting all of the specs that they have Mm -hmm. and things that are outside of that had nothing to do with me writing the actual music. So um, maybe there'd be like two revisions later on because a scene got added or, you know, something like that. Or, or there, there was some big talent in that film from the part of the world they were in and they didn't, you know, maybe they would cut a scene because the talent didn't approve it or something, you know? And so there'd be like those little things um, that could make it stretch out. But uh, the music was pretty much done in like two months. Yeah. I think a lot of people don't register that stuff is oftentimes no matter what it is that you're doing, whether you're editing or whether you're doing music creation, um, you know, the actual creative portion of it is at least in my experience, it's pretty, pretty quick. 
you know, mm-hmm. the actual designing of something or or putting a scene together or, or cutting a sequence and and finding all like that that emotional context usually happens pretty quick. It's uh, like almost 40% of the job is that other shit. It's like the making sure that it's mastered correctly, making sure you're using the right formats and oh, there was an issue with this and oh, we have to change the edit because of this. And so uh, a big portion of what we do is, you know, sort of like shop work to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Where you know you're like you put your tools back the way they belong, <laughs> and, you know, and you're dealing with like some strange format that no one told you that needed to be done, and it's like, oh fuck, I have to change my whole timeline for that format. Okay, and so then that that's like a whole other week of just uh, yeah. like. No, that's half our lives. I mean, we did, my studio did the sound design and mix on that one too. And, you know, the thing for us, I'm, I'm sure for you guys, it's all the different frame rates you need to deliver it to and mm-hmm. the different formats and stuff. now. Yeah. Oh yeah, dude. Different yeah. aspect ratios. Everything changes now. For us, it's all the immersive uh, file formats, you know, cause everything now is in five one um, for the most part. Um, and, we're actually doing a lot in Atmos now. So like people, you know, they don't, most people who come to you unless they're at the studio level aren't really necessarily thinking about surround sound Mm -hmm. from the onset. Uh, And that's the thing that always tends to be a hiccup um, towards the end is just, you know, getting in the right uh, sound format. Yeah. 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 It's crazy. It's crazy. And, And when you, when you, start to take more professional jobs. Like you were saying earlier, that's when you really learn these things. That's when you really start to understand, uh, you know, I guess that comes down to management again, like sort of emotional management where it's like, this isn't all just creative. There's a big piece (laughs) of this that oftentimes can be incredibly frustrating because uh, you're also dealing with other people's issues and dealing with the collaboration of like different post houses and everything Mm -hmm. else. And, that's most of the time that you'll hear me yelling and screaming in the fucking head <laughs> just like, oh my God, did they not get that upload? You know, and just like, oh yeah. God, that's most of your life. Um, but, uh, you know, it's great that through all that though, you can, you still remember and you obviously do, you still remember what the emotional core of this stuff is, which is, you know, telling stories and, and conveying an emotional feeling that you felt somewhere in your life, you know? That's what it's all about. The rest of it's just so that you can distribute it. (laughs) (laughs) Hell yeah, man. So you could fit it on those TVs that they're trying to sell. (laughs) 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 Well, dude, this has been great, Roman. Thank you for being on the show, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, anytime. Thanks so much. I I also really appreciate it. uh, I learned a lot as well. All right, episode done in the can. Whew. Another good one. Um, I hope you guys, I hope episodes like this just get you thinking and get you excited about your potential collaboration with a composer and get you thinking a little bit differently about music. And there are so many of us out there, and I've been guilty of this the same way, where I'll hear something in another movie and I'll love how that made me feel. I'll love the way that uh, the Trent Reznor track sounded in, you know, um, the Facebook movie there, Social Network. Or I love the way that piece sounded in Sicario. And so you're like, I want to have the audience feel that same way, so I'll just take that song and I'll put it in my thing. Remember 
that the first time that they hear that, they're going to think of that other movie. They're going to think of Sicario. They're going to think of Social Network. And then the, you're going to have to fight that. You're going to have to fight that thought process as they look at your film. Like, it's going to distract them from your piece. And so there's something to be said about putting in music that no one's ever heard before. I always, I've said this before on a show, um, but with great movies, movies that I love, feel like the first time you go over to your friend's house, a new friend, someone you haven't met before, and you go into their place and you're looking around and your, your, your senses are heightened, right? You walk into a stranger's house and you're like, what's it smell like? What's it sound like in here? What's it look like? Where's the light coming from? It's one of the best things in the world. I love going into someone's house for the first time because you're now, the world changes and you're in this new space. And that's what music can do for your film. And if it comes from a wildly original spot, then you're telling them. You know, it's like, I don't want to just walk into someone's house. Sure, I'll walk into someone's house and they have the Fight Club score on. And you're like, oh yeah, fucking Fight Club. Great. That, that's how I'm associating that, right? I'd rather walk into the house and go like, where is this from? What are you listening to? Where'd you buy this one? Huh. That's interesting. Cool. And that sound has emotionally stamped itself to that experience. See what I'm saying here? Doing kind of a shitty job trying to explain it, but think that way when you're making projects. All right. Um, thanks for listening. I'm not going to keep you guys. I hope you guys enjoyed the show. Thank you, Roman, for letting us play the music. And uh, we'll leave you with another track on the way out. And uh, you know the deal, man. I will see you next Tuesday. <laughs>